Welcome to part 10 of Common Grounds bonus content podcast. As we are working our way through the book of Daniel, we are going through some of the nitty gritty details here, some of the details that get cut out of the sermon, some of the stuff that isn't necessarily a major theme or the main point of the passage, but yet we still think that it's taught in this passage and we still think it's it's relevant and important to us as we seek to live as exiles, as we seek to stay faithful to God in a world that doesn't. I really think this stuff that we're going to talk about today is important um, when it comes to that. And so hopefully this podcast does that. It helps you to understand the book of Daniel. Hopefully it helps you to understand chapter 10 and all of the weird spiritual warfare and stuff that's in it. And at the very least, I hope it's entertaining for you. So thanks for listening here as we reach chapter 10. So here we are, Daniel chapter 10, and while we focused in the sermon on God's love and just how God's love was displayed to Daniel, a big major sub-theme in Daniel chapter 10 is the spirit world, is spiritual warfare. And in Daniel 10, you know, it is unavoidably about spiritual warfare. Um, But of course, you know, there's the understanding among pastors that Whenever you preach on something, you know, God will give you the opportunity to learn about that, to actually experience that topic right before you teach it. It's like one of God's most favorite things to do to pastors or anyone who teaches the Bible. You know, if you're going to teach on generosity, guess what? That week, someone is going to ask you for money. It's just going to happen. If you're going to teach on patience, you know, you're going to have a lot of opportunities to be patient that week. That's just the way it works. And so, when looking at the two major themes in chapter 10, uh, one of them being God's love for us, and the other one being spiritual warfare, here's the thing. I ain't no dummy. And so, I chose to talk about God's love, (laughs) you know? I chose to talk about God's love because, honestly, I had great opportunities this last week to display God's love and to experience God's love. And I figured, you know what, what better place to talk about the nitty gritty aspects of spiritual warfare than this podcast. And so that's really a big part of what we'll talk about today is the spiritual warfare that is taught in Daniel chapter 10. And of course, the thing that we have to recognize is that this is all real. Um, Christians throughout history have always believed that there is a reality beyond the one that we can see, right? And, th- and we have believed that. And though we don't talk about it much, we have always believed that there is such a thing as angels, there is such a thing as demons. That God is real, that the Satan is real, and that there is a real battle going on, unseen to us, for the most part, you know, in the heavenly screen. And if you can imagine me doing the hand motions of the heavenly screen right now, right? That this passage reveals this reality. That there is more than we can just see down here. That there is a bigger picture, a an unseen realm, to use Michael Heiser's words, up above, in which the spiritual powers do exist. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. You know, Paul, Paul calls it the powers and principalities in Ephesians 6. Peter calls it in 1 Peter chapter 5. You know, he says that this stuff is happening all the time. He says that that this is not unordinary, that this sort of thing is normal. And so I want to assert 
that these moments, that this spiritual warfare, whenever we experience this, it's meant to be apocalyptic to us. It's meant to reveal to us that the spiritual world is a very ordinary thing, that it is all around us. However, oftentimes we, I think, fail to see it, you know? We only see what is on the bottom screens to continue to use that split screen, big TV analogy. And if you can imagine, I'm doing the hand motions down below, right? That what is down here is typically all that we want to see. All that we want to acknowledge exists. And it's not just the atheists or the secular people that do this, right? It's often Christians too. We think, you know, we shouldn't be into any of the weird stuff. No spiritual warfare, you know, no spiritual gifts, no spiritual world, none of the top screen. Uh, And many Christians just want to think about what we see down here. And so often Christians will box their faith into what fits down here, down here in these bottom screens. The thing is, when, when this happens, when we box our faith into these bottom screens, our faith becomes all about, I mean, all that's left is knowing the right things and doing the right things, right? Because those are easy, tangible things. We can learn. Everyone thinks learning is good. And so our friends, our coworkers, they'll approve of us wanting to know the right things, you know? And they'll approve of us wanting to do the right things, right? If we talk about wanting to be more moral people and living out the things we believe, everyone's like, yeah, great. That's that's a good thing. But Christianity that is boxed into these frames is a faith that's just knowing and doing. (laughs) And I know that some people are going to be like, well, you know, what else is there? You know, know the right things and do the right things. That's basically it. But it isn't. It's not. And we can't just baptize those words um, and, and use Christianese to say that, oh, well, it's not just knowing, it's believing, right? And it's not just doing, it's obedience, you know? And there's nothing else but that. And the reality is that there is something else. There's God, you know, because a faith that is purely knowing and a faith that is purely doing has no need for an actual relationship with an actual God. If my faith is judged on how much I know and how much I do, when it comes to how much I do, when I'm failing to do, um, you know, if I'm not doing enough, okay, I just need to learn more and then I will know more and then I will do it, right? And I can fix that. I just need to know more so I can do more. And at no point in that process do I actually need a savior. I might need a teacher. I might need Google to help me out and help me learn a few things, but I don't actually need God. All I need to know is enough about him. And so Jesus on the cross, uh, oftentimes in this framework, when we just box our faith down to these bottom screens and we deny the spiritual world, Jesus on the cross becomes just a subject to study, becomes just something to know about instead of someone to worship, instead of someone to behold and to be thankful for. And that's, that's not what we're called to. And so what happens in this down here, Christianity, I'm doing the hand motions again, is that all the weird stuff, right, the spiritual world, which is to say God, essentially, um, gets ignored. Because it's just kind of weirder than makes sense to us, you know? And so I wouldn't I wouldn't actually want to talk about that stuff with my coworkers, you know? I'd rather talk to them about knowledge and how much I learn, uh, because learning's good, and, and logic is good, and, and even secular non-Christians like logic. And so I want to just show them that I have a very logical faith, um, 
And so I want to just talk to them about that. Nothing illogical, nothing immaterial, nothing like that. And I want to also just talk to them about my morality, right? How good of a person I am or, or how I am, you know, single-handedly changing the world. And, and I'm not at all part of the problem, right? I'm just talking about my morality. Because we know these things and we can do these things. But the stuff about having a relationship with God and the stuff about knowing God in an intimate way and, and actually spending time with God, praying to God, hearing from God, yikes, right? You know, especially hearing from God, that weirds a lot of even Christians out. You know, it's one thing to talk to God, but hearing from God, a lot of Christians think is weird. You know, they think he's in heaven and they'd like him to stay there. <laughs> so, so they don't want to actually hear from him. It, it might make them seem like a schizo. But so much gets lost um, when we box our faith in this way. And when we start thinking that this stuff is weird, that this stuff isn't real, that this stuff just belongs in that heavenly frame, that, that there can't be any crossover, that, that the spiritual world does not interact with the physical world. And God himself, frankly, gets lost when we box him out in that way. And so my hope, especially when we read the book of Daniel and we see these things that seem so foreign to us and so supernatural, is that we would see the reality of what is up here, of the spiritual world, um, and that we would see that this should really be the default outlook of our lives, that the spiritual world is the ordinary, and the physical world here where the spiritual seems to be disconnected, that is the weird, that is unordinary, that is something that is not right, that there's a disconnect at the moment. That the spiritual world and spiritual warfare is real. It's real. And the Bible teach it, teaches it all throughout it. The Bible teaches it everywhere. However, here's the thing. There are some, you know, we need to be more open about it. We need to be talking about it more. However, I think one thing that we see in this chapter um, is that Daniel experienced something that no one else saw. You know, no one else saw the vision. Daniel saw this vision, and it said that nobody else saw this happen. And frankly, that's not unheard of. This is actually really similar to what happened to the Apostle Paul, right? And actually, one of the reasons that the New Testament Christians affirmed Paul's experience of, of his Damascus Road experience when this light came out and he heard God, and he heard Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? But no one with him heard it as well. Um, that's one of the reasons that New Testament Christians affirmed Paul's experience, because they realized, well, a similar thing happened to Daniel. You know, this is how God works. God does this sometimes, you know. And the thing is, sometimes God will do things. He will tell you something. He will reveal something to you. But it's it's just for you. And the people around you, it might not be for them. It might, frankly, be just for you. And, and I'm not saying that you need to hide these experiences, but I'm just saying that sometimes aspects of the experience, uh, when, when the Holy Spirit breaks in in powerful ways, some aspects of that might just be for you. You know, when you look at Pentecost and the disciples experienced amazing things, you know, they saw tongues of fire fall and they had a mighty wind rush in and, and people were speaking in tongues and they experienced that and they didn't hide it. They didn't lie about it. They didn't keep it a secret. But in their first sermons immediately following Pentecost, they didn't talk about that experience. They didn't talk about what happened on that day. They just talked about Jesus. They just talked about the resurrection. And so it's as if that experience, it really was just for them. It was just for them and God. And they weren't sent to talk about that experience, just to talk about what God has, has done. 
And maybe you've had an experience similar to this where, where in church, maybe you heard something that, that stuck out to you and, and you talked to someone else about it and you were really amazed, but they like definitely weren't, or maybe they didn't even hear that. Or, you know, God spoke to you and, and no one else noticed, or you, you seem to have seen something that no one else could see. You know, sometimes I think that there are aspects of, of what God does to break in from the spiritual world to show us something that could just be for us, that could just be for us to propel us forward to share his gospel. And sometimes spiritual warfare is like that, where it's not as much about the experience. The point of it is to point out that God is in control, that God is more powerful, that he is, he is mightier than the spiritual forces, or that he is propelling us to share the gospel with him. Now, in Daniel 10, there is a quite a lot of confusing stuff, especially in regard to spiritual warfare. Um, the angel that comes to, to share the message with him seems to have a bit of an excuse for why he's late, um, and he explains that he was fighting with the, the prince or the king of Persia, the ruler of Persia. And it's not that he was actually fighting with, like, the human king of Persia. Um, it's commonly, this title, the leader, is commonly used for a spiritual power, um, a demon, right? In that same chapter at the very end, Michael is called one of the princes. He's a leader of this area. And so, essentially, this angel tells him, sorry, I was fighting a demon who's a ruler of that region, and this gets into a whole interesting topic, you know, of essentially spiritual warfare or demonology, you know. And one of the first important things that we really learn here is that when it comes to angels and demons and all of that, there is some kind of rank among angels. If you do any study in theology, you're going to find that there's some kind of rank, that they're not all given the same roles, they're not all equal in that way. They're not like humans. They've been given different roles. And scripture seems to indicate that there's rank and order among them. Now, there are only two in scripture who were ever named. There are multiple different like spiritual beings, like the seraphim, which we're pretty familiar with, being current residents of the seraphim theater. And there are the cherubim, and they play different roles, but none of them are given names. Only two guys who are described as being pretty human-like and seem to be, you know, gendered men are Michael and Gabriel. Those are the only two guys that are ever named. And Michael, as it talked about in this chapter, he's described as an archangel in Jude chapter 9. Right? He's got a lot of rule and authority over other angels. He's called the chief of princes at the end of this chapter, right? In Daniel chapter, thir- uh, Jan- Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. And so it appears that he's like the leader of the like angel army. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 describes that. And it describes Michael's role of being a warrior and fighting. And so it's funny that, you know, a lot of the images of angels that we have in pop culture or in like Renaissance art. In Renaissance art, somehow they got turned into babies. And in pop culture, you know, in movies like It's a Wonderful Life, you've got this goofy dude. Clarence, right, is his name, and he's an angel. Or you get, you know, classic movies like Angels in the Outfield, and it's, again, just kind of some silly, friendly dude who's an angel. But, uh, you know, one of the only named angels here, Michael, is literally a general in the army 
and some kind of warrior, right? Now, uh, one of the other aspects of this uh, encounter that this angel seems to describe is that he was stopped up and he was stuck in one place. Um, And this is an important aspect of angels and demons is that they can only be in one place at one time, right? Scripture frequently represents angels as traveling from one place to another because they are not God. And God is actually the only one who is omnipresent, who can be in multiple places at one time. But angels, demons, all other beings can only ever be in one place at one time. And this is an important distinction between God and everybody else, is that only God can be in multiple place, multiple places at the same time. Um, and so, because of that, some demons, some angels, they're stuck in certain areas. Um, and it seems to imply that certain areas can have demons you know, demonic strongholds over those areas. And and some areas can have angelic protection or angelic armies protecting them, you know? And that's a real thing. Those those strongholds really exist. You know, I believe in that heebie-jeebie stuff, you know? This stuff is real. And if you don't think it's real, you just need to go on a mission trip outside of the Western world sometime. You'll be able to see this. Or if you just read your Bible a little more, you will notice that the Bible talks about this stuff an awful lot. And the reality is that you, if you believe your Bible, you just can't avoid this. You can't avoid um, the spiritual world. If you want to know more about it, you know, start looking up some demonology and, you know, th- theology, theology books like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is pretty decent and it's available online for free. It's public domain. Look that up. If you want to get into the nitty-gritty, uh, Dr. Dr. Michael Heiser has two great books, one called The Unseen Realm, which just deals with the spiritual world in general, and then he has a book on angels and demons and just lays out all that the Bible has to say about it, all that the Bible has to say about it, because it's real. It really is out there, and it's a real thing, but here's, here's the deal. We don't have to be afraid of it. Um, spiritual warfare in the spiritual world is real. But God is protecting us from it. God is protecting us from it. And in Ephesians 6, I just wanted to bring out this passage. We have the very famous, well-known passage about the armor of God, right? In Ephesians 6. And Paul says in verse 11, that the armor of God is for taking your stand against the devil's schemes, for fighting against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, heavenly realms. And frankly, this should, one, encourage us And change the way that we view fights here, you know, right? Because we know that the armor of God and that God's protection is from the spiritual forces. And that, you know, scripture says we shouldn't be afraid of someone who can kill our bodies. We're not afraid of that. God can put it back together. We should be afraid of who can harm our spiritual body, but we know that we're protected from all that. And the armor of God is a great reminder of that. But here's the thing, you know, somewhere I think in our like our American ideas of of being strong and courageous and being great little soldiers who go out and we fight. Um, We've come to think that the armor of God is all about like bucking up and preparing for battle and it's being brave and and it's going out and fighting. And frankly, that's my temptation too. I have the temptation to read it like that. But this this frankly is not at all um, what it means. Um, The fact that we're told we need armor uh, should be kind of a red flag to point out, hey, you are weak. Uh, we are vulnerable, 
And uh, it's the armor of God because we need God to protect us, right? It's not the armor of faith or it's not anything we can do. It's something God gives us. God is giving us this protection. We can't do it on our own. These things are only things that he can do. But what Paul says here is you can't go fight. Guess what? You're a wimp. If you go into battle, if you go against the spiritual forces, you will die. <laughs> you, you need a helmet so that when you get attacked, uh, your head doesn't split open, right? And you need a breastplate so that you don't die. And you need a sword and a shield so that you can be protected. You need these things, and these things only come from God. And, you know, the idea is that, you know, we should, we should be prepared with this and that, that we're protected by these things. And one of the things that, or I guess the, the picture of armor that Paul's getting here is from a Roman centurion, you know. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he was talking about centurions and an important aspect of the Roman army. And one of the reasons that they were so powerful is because they were so well trained. They trained a lot. And a big part of their training was just in getting dressed and being ready for battle right away so that they didn't have to think about it. They just slap this stuff on, they're ready to go. And they knew exactly what to do with their armor. They knew exactly that everything was on right and what to do so that once the battle came, they didn't have to think about it, that they could be ready for battle. They could be ready to go at any time. And this is the description that Paul is giving us that, hey, the spiritual world is out there. It's real. But guess what? You don't have to rely on your own. You don't have to just think about it and do stuff that God has given you these gifts. God has given you these protections, you know, and just like the Roman centurions, they just relied on the armor they were given. One of the other reasons they were so powerful and they did so well is that they had basically the best technology when it comes to armor. They had enormous shields. You didn't have to be good at using a shield for a Roman centurion shield to protect you. Just Google right now, Roman Centurion Shield. You'll see it's huge. All you got to do is hold it up and you're good. And essentially, this is how spiritual warfare works. We just rely on the gifts and protection we are given. The armor of God is on us and protects us. And all of this is not dependent on us. It's dependent on the one who gives us the gifts to protect us. And just like, um, you know, in this passage, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6 with the armor of God, Paul describes the armor, and then in verse 18, Paul finishes with this. He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And then he says, you know, pray for me too. Pray that I would be fearless and pray for all these things. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, prayer is significant. Prayer is the way that it's done. And it just so happens that Daniel was a radical man of prayer, right? We know that he prays three times a day, um, but he also had been praying in these chunks. He also had been praying when we get to chapter 10 for 21 days, right? He was seeking God in intense prayer. He was persevering in prayer. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to just prayer in general, hopefully we learn something from Daniel in that he was so persistent in prayer that that was the first place he turned to. And then when it, even when it didn't seem to be working, uh, he under, well, maybe he didn't even understand it, but there was more going on than he knew, right? This angel was in the middle of a fight. There was spiritual stuff going on he couldn't understand, but he didn't need to understand. He just needed to keep praying. And frankly, this, this is our approach too. Uh, we don't need to understand it all. Uh, we just keep praying. We just keep praying and lean into God. 
And one of the things that we can remember is, frankly, the battle's over. You know, Jesus has won. Um, because we are on this side of the cross, the devil's defeated. He's, you know, bound. That The battle truly is over. Um, if you know anything about World War II history, then you'll know that, you know, after the Nazis finally admitted defeat and the war was officially declared over, battles and little periodic fights still continued for over a year, actually, you know. The war was over, but some just didn't want to surrender, and they wanted to just go down swinging, and this really is how spiritual warfare is today. The war is won, Jesus won, Revelation declares that the Lamb has won, but some demonic forces just want to go down swinging. They want to put up little fights, but, you know, the reality is they're on borrowed time. The reality is that that the game is over. <laughs> and if we could keep using just that, that sports bar analogy of the big screen, it's like if the game happened yesterday, you know the result, and you're just going to rewatch it. Um, and that's really um, what is happening in the spiritual world today. Um, the game's over. Greater is he who is in, the, is in us than is in the world. The battle is over, and we can take courage and strength in God's love and in God's protection. So that is Daniel chapter 10. That is a little bit about the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare that is taught in Daniel chapter 10. The important reality that this is reality, right? That there is a spiritual world. There is a big screen beyond just what we can see. And this should be, this should be ordinary to us. This is what the scripture teaches over and over again. And then just a bit about the spiritual world. Again, I would encourage you, as you're reading the Bible, take these things seriously. Look for that. Look for that and know that it's real, but also view it in light of the cross, in light of things like Ephesians chapter 6 and the armor of God, that God has given us protection against these things and that we don't have to fear. And that we know that truly the battle is over, that Jesus has defeated death and Satan and evil. And because of that, we can live in peace and we can be strengthened with the reality that Jesus has defeated all of this. 